for our first message, we have a split sermon, at least part one of a split sermon, from Mr. Ron Wilhoy entitled, The Need for the Almighty. Mr. Wilhoy. Well, if I have to admit it, I will, but I did do it. You know, I felt I had to do it when I heard that thunder, and I heard that gentle tapping on the roof. I had to go outside. I had to do this. Thank you. Thank you, Eternal. Wasn't it beautiful to have that rain this morning? I just loved it. I'm a rain kind of guy. I love rain. I love the way it smells. I love the way it kind of sets the mood sometimes, you know. Well, what I want to do today to begin with is begin with a short video. It's something that has been out since about October of 2010. It's a short little video. And I'll follow up with something that uh, I found out this week. So we'll go ahead and roll that, Brian. Did you know that nine out of 10 Americans say they believe in God, but from there, how we imagine God diverges. What we believe about God's temperament, God's presence in our lives divides into very distinct portraits. Differences that may say as much about us as they do about the divine. And Dan Harris lets you decide. If you ask children to draw God, you'll get a fascinating variety of images from a man on a throne to a smiley face to a shining sun to a cross-legged Buddha type. Turns out, same goes for their parents. In a new book called America's Four Gods, two professors from Baylor University use polling data to break down our belief in God into four different categories. About 28% of us believe in an authoritative God. An authoritative God believes in a God that is both very judgmental and very engaged in the world at the same time. They tend to be evangelical and male. 22% of Americans, mostly evangelical women, believe in a benevolent God who is also thoroughly involved in our lives, but is loving, not stern. If somebody's not there for you, he's always there. That's how I look at God. 21% of Americans believe in a critical God who is removed from daily events, but will render judgment in the afterlife. We find a strong tendency for African-Americans for people who are at lower levels of income and education to believe in the critical God. And 24% of us believe in a distant God who set the universe in motion, but then disengaged. I think he created the world to be a certain way, and um, he's allowed humans to have this free reign. They also tend to be people who say that they're spiritual, but maybe not religious. The professors say these questions are not merely academic, that the type of God in which you believe has a profound impact on your morals, your behavior, and your politics. For example, believers in an engaged, judgmental God are more likely to see natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina as God's punishment. Believers in a distant God are apt to be less suspicious of science and more likely to agree with Benjamin Franklin's assertion that God, the supremely perfect, doesn't care one bit for such an inconsiderable nothing as man. A person's conception of God 
is central to how they perceive their world and behave in it. These questions about how we conceive of God unlock our most basic values and often tap into our childlike imagination about who or what created the universe. Dan Harris, ABC News, New York. I thought that was fascinating. So what do we say? We got the authoritative God, I think kind of had the majority of how. This nine-tenths, did you see how Diane Sawyer began that presentation by saying that as of October 2010, nine-tenths of Americans believe in God. And I do this, and I want to say that that very well might be little g God of having a God notion because it's a very generic term and if you work with people like I do from all around the world my idea of that word definitely is not theirs yet that word is used among us all so what was that authoritative benevolent critical or distant. I like that one. It says, well, he kind of got all this going and then just checked out. And, oh, don't worry. There'll be some judgment at the end when I come back. It's a categorical God notion of where we can kind of place the eternal in some sort of perception that we have. Now, that was right, October 2010, when we had this nine-tenths, I had to go back and say, did she say really nine-tenths have that kind of belief? But just this week, from, from the BBC, I wish I would have had this little bit on video because when I, I need to read some parts of this article because it's fascinating because why it's fascinating to me is that I have children and I'm probably not too far away from having grandchildren. Everybody in this room knows children, has children, knows young people. It's just how it is. And this is very, very relevant. Very relevant to every one of us. So after nine-tenths from October of 2010 have this little g God notion which I would say very well is some sort of belief that there very well might be a reason to behave in a certain way, conduct themselves in a certain way. This week in, in the BBC, I've always said that if you want to know kind of what's going on in our little pot, you've got to look outside of our pot. And the BBC does that quite often. But from BBC News Magazine, the article, Why is Faith Falling in the U.S.? Why is faith falling in the U.S.? It says a new poll suggests that atheism is on the rise in the U.S., while those who consider themselves religious has dropped and they want to know what is the cause. It's a lengthy article to where they kind of position a debate for certain authors to kind of say, well, what do you think about this? I would encourage you to look at the article, but I just want to read some excerpts from an individual by the name of Rod Dreyer. The poll suggests that in the United States since 2005, now see this poll goes back five years before 
the October 2010 video of this nine-tenths having this little g God notion. The number of people who consider themselves religious has dropped from 73% to 60%. Those who declare themselves atheists, I mean, I'm a declared atheist from 1% to 5%. So the question is, what's behind the changing numbers? And I like the things they want you to think about it. Is it the cause that churches chase modern trends at the expense of core beliefs? That the establishment, a church, would chase modern trends at the expense of their core beliefs. This is interesting. Or that those who have always been ambivalent about religion are now less likely to identify themselves as Christian. What's your religion? What are you? What do you believe in? Well, yeah, I guess I was Christian. I, folks had a Bible. Guess I'm Christian. That's going away towards I'm nothing. So Rod Dreher begins by saying this. He says, as a practicing Christian, I welcome the news that more Americans are willing to identify as atheists. At least that clarifies matters. And he says, I respect honest atheists more than I do many on my own side for the same reason that Jesus of Nazareth said to the tepid Laodicean church, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He says, at least they've made a stand. He continues to say that all of America's mainline Protestant denominations, all of them are in steep decline, and they have been for years. Which makes me think that this 9% who have this God notion, it's all across the board. He continues by adding as a certain statistic that 90% of U.S. nuns are 60 years or older. It's an interesting statistic. 90% of nuns are 60 years or older. Conservative U.S. churches may be doing better but cannot gloat. According to exhaustive social science data analyzed by Robert Putnam of Harvard and David Campbell of Notre Dame, all organized American religion all organized American religion is in a demographic decline. He says, so good news for atheism, right? And he says, eh, not really. Putnam and Campbell, writing in their much-praised 2010 book, American Grace. Now listen, 2010 book called American Grace found that atheism, atheism continues to be confined to a relatively tiny population. So these self-professed atheists is confined to a relatively tiny population, which he says disproportionately concentrated in two places. Academia and the media. Academia and the media. The disproportionate number of atheists found in here. But here's where he gets to this point, and I'm going to have to get moving on this. I would encourage you to read this article because he says the blockbuster, the blockbuster growth in American religion is happening among a category the authors dub the nuns. If you ask the question, what religion are you, what belief do you have? None. It's none. 
people who claim no religious affiliation, but most of whom, here it comes, believe in God. It's a God notion based on some belief that I'm not religious. Everyone wants a spiritual element to their lives. The nuns have this, not N-U-N, like the 90% that are 60 and older. This is the nuns, the N-O-N-E, and they're growing. But the nuns' number is deceptively low, understanding the generational wave now breaking upon the U.S. religious landscape. Here's the point. Among young adults aged 18 to 29, 30% are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, and their numbers are rapidly rising. I want to conclude with one thing that he says. What it is that is attracting this particular age group of people, this particular demographic, is what the author calls an MTD. MTD. And it's defined as a moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's a fascinating term. A moralistic, therapeutic deism, it's an MTD, okay? This is how he concludes by saying this. According to Smith's research, MTD is the default religion of nearly all American young people, both Christian and non-Christian, okay? Who are a generation of theological illiterates. He puts in parentheses, Mormon youth are a fascinating exception. He says it is the perfect pseudo-religion for an individualist, consumerist, prosperous culture. It is the perfect pseudo-religion for an individualist, consumerist, prosperous culture. America's postmodern religious future then would appear to belong to theological slackers who believe in a vague deity who makes no demands and only provides psychological comfort. But this is his point. He says at some point the nuns may discover that neither MTD nor atheism can give them the other worldly hope they need to endure and to triumph over true suffering. It's a profound sentence. At some point, and he says, should that moment happen, there will be some churches, diminished, yes, but still extant, left to take in shipwrecked souls. Now, the author calls this moment the come-to-Jesus moment. I'm not a fan of that. I don't like that term. But I understand his urgency in using it to try to get the message apart that something's about to happen. At some point along this line, when this pseudo-religion fails, 
and shipwrecked souls are there. I call it the Abram moment is what it is. When the Abram moment happens in the lives of shipwrecked souls, where will each of you in this room be? Is that demographic, 18 to 29, relevant to each one of us in this room? Because there are numerous, uncountable, Abram moments that I feel are on the horizon. Now here's what I define as the Abram moment. I thought about this. It's really kind of got me stirred up just a little bit to how true this really is. That the undercurrent of everything is great in the consumer society, what's really going on underneath it is a nothingness. Shipwrecking the lives of young people. So the Abram moment is the abandonment of all God notion. The abandonment of all God notion to the revelation of the covenant relationship nature. It's the covenant relationship nature that the Almighty offers. So I want to look at something very interesting in Abram from Genesis 12. Very familiar with Genesis 12, 1 through 4. I mean, just quite simply, it's the Lord said unto Abram, you've got to get out. Get out of your country from your kindred, your father's house, into a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But he says here, Scripture says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old. Who's 75 in this room or really close? If someone is 75, could you possibly say at being 75 that at 75 you very well might be somewhat set in your ways? <laughs> I'm almost 50 and brother, I am well set in some ways. So you have to think about that, that after 75 years of living, threefold. Get out of your country. Get away from your kindred. Get away from your father's house. Now see a wise guy. You know the type. A wise guy. He says, okay. If he got out of the country, wouldn't he in essence be out of his father's house? Yeah. But what Scripture reveals to us is this three-part escalation, if it were, of the departure. One, you've got to get out of the country. You've got to get away from your kindred. 
You've even got to get out of your father's house. You see the significance in that? Country, kindred, your very father's house. Country, it's a place. It's community, right? It's culture. There was a culture. Says, everyone, you've got to get out of that country. You've got to get out of that culture. That's like when you're working with wood. Anybody's got one of those really nice wood rasps that just takes off a good shave? Bits fly everywhere. That's what we'll say. We'll call that the rasp. Abram, you've got to get out of the country. We're going to rasp some of that off. But getting out of your country, you might be bringing something with you from your kindred. I have various degrees of sandpaper. We've got to get rid of some of that kindred stuff because that's not coming with you. Then he even takes it down to your father's house. Because that, to me, seems like there was a raising. Abram wasn't always 75, was he? He was raised in a country among kindred in a house. That's got to come off, too. I call that the crocus cloth level. Do you know what crocus cloth is? Man, it's fine. Sounds like triple-aught steel wool. It takes off just barely. Community, culture, clan, influence. Clan, influence. My family's always said this is how we ought to do it. You know my daddy. Accepted wisdom and what's called a proximity perspective. Well, where are you from? Well, I'm from here. So I got to me a proximity perspective. And it could be all over the world. Proximity perspective. So what did he take with him? Well, it's verse 5. What went with him? He took the wife, Lot, all the substance. I understand there was some substance. You've got to take your substance. And then all of the people that had joined with him there in Haran. But what about his political persuasion? I mean, after living and being 75 years old there, don't you think he had some sort of ideas about things? Had some things he liked culturally. He had some things about this society that he thought was really good. He liked to identify himself with certain things. He had favorite this or that, maybe not favorite that. I got some likes, I got some dislikes. But brethren, I think that Abram had to leave who Abram was as an individual. As he was defined by that culture. As he was defined by that society. How Abram existed had to be left behind. It's every idea. That's every accepted concept. It's assumed wisdom. Always been told such and such. Any preconceived concoction of reasoning 
had to stay behind. And brethren, I think that every affiliation that he had had to stay behind. And the mindset, you know, our minds are incredibly powerful in that however you feel we got it, the mind is very powerful in that it thinks it knows what's best for us, but at times it actually thinks it knows best for others. Some of that old, well, I know how I would do it, thinking. You know, if it were me, you know what I'd do? Not really. Every notion had to be set aside for this reason. To come out of country, to come away from the kindred, to come out of your father's house, to leave every notion set aside is so he could see and he could hear who the Almighty Eternal would reveal himself to be. And what's fascinating to me is that it's a, it's a, it's a migration from notion to the covenant relationship. The covenant relationship. And you remember those I will promises? And he says, you've got to go from this, this, and this, and I will show you a land, make you a great nation, bless you, make your name great, and make you a blessing. And these I will promises are what were formalized in that covenant relationship. And that's what it is. It's the revealed covenant, relationship, nature that the Almighty offers. But every God notion, every concocted idea, every cultural preconception has got to be set aside to enter into that personal, one-on-one -on -one covenant relationship with the eternal to just get away from it all and meet him and have him reveal to each of us who he is and what an incredible, incredible picture of what happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. Whether you drive a thousand miles by going to Canada, whether you drive, I don't know how many miles to San Antonio, whether you stay right here, it is that departure to camp with the Almighty. Now this covenant was repeated four additional times and of course we understand that it then went to who? Isaac. And then of course to Jacob. But I want to look at, jumping just a couple Brian, I want to look at Genesis twenty-two sixteen. Just that first bit just kind of By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. By myself, the Eternal says that, and as our pastor Lawrence Gregory has preached for years that there is no greater authority than what the Eternal says right here 
By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. It's that covenant relationship nature and the fulfilling of those promises. Because only the Father and only our Savior are the true promise keepers. I know there's been an organization in the country that try to get men to be promise keepers and try to hold to oaths and certain things, but all men are liars. And we try as hard as we can, but I tell you what, we do know in our weakness that we have the true promise keeper in the eternal and through our Savior. I love that verse. That in our weakness, his strength is made manifest because we can't do anything. We can't do anything in advancing the kingdom message. We can't do anything in directing people to their need of the covenant relationship. And it's not a God notion. It's not something concocted out of maybe this ism and that ism, a little bit of that, and it's just kind of like, oh, what's a good mixture of something? Anyway, that's what it is. It's just the mixture that it gets lost in. And when shipwrecked souls are just washing all over the place, where are those who are in the covenant relationship offered by the eternal, where are we going to be? have to be exactly where we are there. Directing, pointing, saying there is a better way. And it has nothing to do with religion. It has everything to do about a covenant relationship offered by the eternal. Now, as we know, that in loving and in keeping and in guarding and in observing the covenant. That Abram's name was what? It was changed. And we know this verse, but I want to look at the very end of Genesis 17, verse 5. In loving personal covenant relationship, in keeping and observing, observing the testimonies, the testimonies which are the revelation of the divine nature, covenant relationship, Abram was renamed. Neither shall thy name anymore be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made you. He hadn't made him that yet, but in the fulfillment of that covenant promise, he was renamed. Fulfillment of that covenant promise by entering into that covenant relationship. Those I will blessings came upon him and he renamed him. A renaming. It's a defining name of the fulfillment of his covenant promises through his covenant relationship. All right, I want to close with, I want you to think about this verse. It kind of just makes me go... It's one of those good head scratchers. You know what kind I'm talking about, Ilya. You look at that verse and you go, whoa, there's a lot to that. It's in Revelation 2 in verse 17. Revelation 2 in verse 17. An often repeated wake-up call, attention-getter, 
of our Savior. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. I've sat and I've wondered. The hidden manna. Okay, I remember the manna, but there's hidden manna. And we'll give him a white stone. You're going to be handed a white stone. And in the stone, a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. 